got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 1. If you've got your Acts book, we're going to be in Acts 1. I think it's page 1, actually. Isn't it? It doesn't have a page number. Yep, page 1. Or page 6, actually. If you're going to take notes, I said this last week, we didn't break this message series down by the way the book is broken down. So you've kind of got to keep an eye on the, the verses uh, and use your space for notes accordingly. We started with Acts 1, 1 to 5 last week, and Jesus is now with this large group on the top of the Mount of Olives. And I got a picture here. You saw this a couple of weeks ago at Palm Sunday. This is taken from Temple Mount, which is now the Dome of the Rock is what's there, taken from Temple Mount down across the Kidron Valley. Everything that you're looking at there, other than what's obviously the modern buildings, that is the Mount of Olives. Garden of Gethsemane and Mount of Olives happened there. Uh, a lot of the events on, on uh, Thursday night before Good Friday happened here. And what we're looking at in the book of Acts right now is all occurring here. Jesus is with this group of people. We're going to talk about it uh, more, what that looks like. And then just beyond that is the uh, city of Bethany. And so to give you some context for what it looks like, that, that's where we are. So Jesus is gathered with this large group, and we're in Acts 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I made the comment last week that the book of Acts reads like a Marvel movie. In a whole lot of ways, it really does. There's that much action. I would encourage you, as we go through this, give yourself permission in your mind to imagine what these events look like. Imagine what it was like to have been there and to have seen this and to have been a part of it and to have watched it happen. You've got some idea of what the scenery looks like. You're standing on this, it isn't a mountain, it's a big hill, and it's full of olive trees and, and evergreen trees, and it's overlooking the city of Jerusalem. But you're there with Jesus because that's where all this action takes place. So just give yourself permission to do that because it really brings the text alive. Verse 6. When they come together, this is this large group of people. These are disciples, not just the, the disciples who were left of the twelve, but it was all the people who consider themselves a disciple of Jesus. All of his followers. There's a bunch of them at this point who were in this place. And, and back four, in verse four, Jesus had ordered the, them to stay in Jerusalem. He didn't give orders very often, but he was, he was very clear on that. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise. And I said, we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to see what happens in verse 6. So this is where that part in 4 begins to come to life. The thing is, Israel believed that God was going to restore them to their former greatness. He believed, uh, they believed that what God was going to do was to recognize how awesome they were as a nation, how faithful they were to God, and that he was going to restore them to political, military, and world dominance. That's what the nation of Israel was looking forward to. And so as Jesus is talking, 
they're hearing him through this lens of what they wanted. The first thing we've got to do is stop for a moment and say, when we read the Bible, do we hear what we want or do we read what's really there? It's really easy to use the Bible to encourage and endorse and enforce whatever it is that we want to believe. But the Bible doesn't always do that. The way that we read it, we've got to be careful because we've got to make sure we understand what's really being said. So Jesus gathers these followers who have very, a very different idea of what it is that he's there to do. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says that at one point there was over 500 people that had gathered with Jesus. That's looking back on the events while Jesus was still on earth. A lot of people who write about the Bible, write commentaries and things, say this is probably the time when those 500 people were gathered. So there was a bunch of people. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. They're concerned about the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is concerned about the things of God here on earth. They're concerned about the things of Israel. God is concerned about what it is that he has given to earth in the form of Jesus and what it is that Jesus has been sent to do. The nation of Israel is concerned about what God's going to do for them. And so they're, they're completely on different pages. They want military and political dominance. That's the kingdom that they want. Jesus came to bring a spiritual kingdom. It's important for us to keep this stuff straight because sometimes what we really want God to do for us isn't what God is there to do for us at all. Who Jesus is sometimes isn't who we want Jesus to be at all. And yet, the way that Israel failed to accept their sin, the way that they failed to accept the way that they had lived and turned from God is what brought them to this place in the first place. I think all too often we overlook what it is that we have done against God and against his commands and against Jesus. And we say, well, I want all of the blessing, but then we're not willing to live in obedience. And that's where Israel finds themselves with Jesus. See, they felt that Rome had taken their kingdom. Rome had taken their place in the world. They had invaded them and they had taken over their land, their cities and all the rest. And so what did God do? He didn't send a great military king. He sent a savior. And Israel wasn't worried about their sin. They were worried about having an army. And yet Jesus came for a very different reason. He came to free them. But it wasn't to free them politically or to free them with an army. Jesus came to give them spiritual freedom. Jesus came that it would be freed from their sin. The same holds true for us today. So what I want to ask you is, what are you really hoping Jesus does for you? When you pray, what are you really praying for? Are you praying for the things of God to come to pass? Or are you praying that God does for you the things that you want God to do for you? See, we can look at this and we can say, wow, those guys were so clueless. They didn't even get it. Jesus was right there and they were still missing it. And I think in the church today, an awful lot of people, we still miss it. Because we, we believe that God will do all these great things for us because we deserve the blessing. But like Israel, we maybe aren't living in obedience. So Jesus came that they would be spiritually free. It wasn't a kingdom that existed through the military or even that existed on the streets. It was a kingdom that exists in the hearts and the minds and the way that we live out our faith in the world. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Looking at our nation today, I think it's been 2,000 years and we have made zero progress. I wonder if we haven't gone backwards. 
And the reason I say that is there's an awful lot of people that we see politicians all the time that want political power and they seek financial gain rather than recognizing that what we need to do, like the nation of Israel, is to acknowledge our sin and ask for forgiveness. And yet they want power. They want something that was never theirs in the first place to be restored. We in America have have gotten comfortable in our sin. And rather than turning to God and asking for forgiveness, an awful lot of people have turned away from God and are now making fun of Him and, and, and telling God, we don't want you anywhere in our lives. And I look at where the nation of Israel was and I look at where we are. And I, I think the obvious question is, what are we going to do about it? The nation of Israel, many of those people never understood. They never figured it out. They, they never grasped who Jesus was and why he was there. And I look at America today and I think the majority of people in our country do not grasp who Jesus is and why he's here. And so we can't change the world, but we can change us. So what are we going to do about it? It seems that we're living in a country that is increasingly trying to silence Jesus. And if we look back on it, that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago when they put him on the cross. They truly believed that if they could silence him, it would end the movement. But it didn't. It only got it going. So so what Israel was really interested in, and we've got to look at our own hearts to understand this. Israel was looking for a change. They were looking for a change in the politics, military, society, and notoriety. What Israel wasn't looking for was a change of heart. And and Jesus says over and over and over that that's where it begins. The Bible tells us it begins with the renewing of our minds, which leads to a renewing of our hearts. Israel wasn't interested in that, but are we? Are we really interested in renewing our hearts? See, they they think that God was going to restore them to their former glory days. They're looking back at King David saying, that's who we want to be. That was when we were at our best. And I listen to people in America today, and we want to be restored to some former version of America that may or may not have ever existed. But what God wants us to do is to be about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of America. And as Christians, are we figuring that out? They wanted the exiles returned that had been sent and scattered throughout the near world around them. They wanted the lost tribes of Israel to be found and to be brought home. They wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it right now. And they said, okay, Jesus, if you're the guy, then give it to us. What they didn't want was what God wanted for them. And the hard part about the Bible is that it's so clear about what God wants for us. And then the way that we live our lives, it's so clear that that's not really what we want. We want the good stuff, but we don't want the obedient stuff. And so we have to look at these texts, and we've really got to put ourselves in the middle of them. I remember 25 years ago, I was at the seminary. There was a New Testament professor, a New Testament in church history. He was an advisor of mine, and I really respected him. He just had incredible knowledge and a man of deep faith. And I I sat for hours in his office learning from him. And I I realized one day, I I went and talked to him and I said, what would happen if God did today what he did 2,000 years ago and completely turned the world upside down? See, the Jewish people thought that they had full access to God and that God was going to do whatever they wanted. And then Jesus came and turned their whole world upside down and they rejected him. And I said, "What, what would happen? What would prevent God from doing that today? And he said, absolutely nothing. 
Nothing would prevent God from doing that. I, I wonder if he isn't going to. But here's what we know. He's not going to do it with a flood. And for 25 years I've wondered, what, what, what's God going to do? I, I wonder what God is going to have to do to grab our attention. Because it isn't that we don't know, it's that we don't do. It, it isn't even that we don't believe, it is that we don't believe enough to act on what we say we believe. And that's what's happening with the nation of Israel here. See, but we've still got a chance. We've got a chance. So the, the question is, are we going to do anything about it? We don't need more knowledge. We need more action. We don't need to know more about Jesus. We need to live more for Jesus. And the nation of Israel missed the boat. Like so many people today, they were arrogant. They were selfish. And, and I look at the politicians, and I look at the business moguls, I, I look at the celebrities of today. How many people are trying to build their own kingdom? Even in small ways, right here where we live, there's people trying to build their own kingdom apart from God. And unlike Jesus, who came to establish his kingdom, we're trying to build our own. And some of us use the excuse that, well, we're doing it for Jesus. But, you know, Jesus came to build a kingdom that no human mind would ever conceive of. Because it isn't about us, it's about others. Jesus, others, and yourself, we went through joy, it still stands. So we still have time to work with Jesus. We still have time to get it right and to understand and to be the church that God called us to be. Or what we can do is what's so popular in America today is we throw our hope in with politicians or bankers or celebrities. And we say, well, you know what, I'm going to get on board. I want to see your kingdom come to power. The U.S. in the last 20 years has gone through a, a very disheartening political revolution. It's no longer about us as a nation. It's about whoever is in power and whatever they decide they want to do. But we got the chance to get it right. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That seems like a simple statement. It's true that God alone, not even the Son, the Bible says, knows when Jesus will return. But the idea that God holds everything and, and all of the times or seasons are under his authority, it, what Jesus is re referring to is the nation of Israel had this mindset. They had this teaching around them, and it was a bad teaching. But it has a very modern context. The teaching was that when the times get too tough and when we start getting close to whenever we've got to get serious, we're going to repent as a people just like they did in the old days. We're going to repent, and God's going to have mercy on us, and He's going to forgive us, and He's going to make us great. And they want to know, are they getting close to where they have to do all that? Do you know how many people I've talked to that said, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'll probably think differently as I get close to the end of my life. I'm going to live for me now. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but I'm going to make sure that I get right with God before I die, because, whew, I don't want to go there. And the obvious question is, how do you know when you're going to die? You're assuming old age. You're assuming a lot of time. Israel was assuming that God was going to put them on a calendar that they were going to understand and that they'd be able to repent. But here's the deal. God isn't impressed with the appearance of our faith. God isn't impressed with the things that we say. God is impressed with the surrender of our hearts. God is impressed with the, the changing of our minds and the renewing of our hearts, not into a better version of us, but in a completely different new creation version because of Jesus. Verse 8, but you will receive power, Jesus says, 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is news. The Spirit of God wasn't a, a surprising thing. That was something they were familiar with. But Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit coming to earth and giving people power, brand new. They didn't understand what that meant. See, the, the Greek word that's uh, used for power, that we translate for power, Luke is the one that uses it most in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But it isn't just power in terms of strength. It goes beyond what we can do on our own. What it leads itself to is healings and miracles and supernatural power that's beyond anything that we can do. The Holy Spirit will come with power beyond anything that a human being can muster on our own. It's a supernatural power of God. And then Jesus talks about this statement about Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's interesting because the book of Acts is laid out that way. Remember I said last week, The first part of Acts is about Peter and his reaching the Jewish people. And the last part of the book of Acts is about Paul and him reaching the rest of the world. Look at the way Jesus says this. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's Jerusalem? That's where they're living. That's the city that they believed was the greatest city on earth. It starts there. And then it says Judea. Well, Judea is the Judean desert that surrounds Jerusalem. And it's, it's bleak, it's just brown, and it's sand. But even the Word of God is going to go out into Judea. And then what's Samaria? Samaria was the home of those people, the half-Jewish, half-Gentile people that the Jewish folks hated. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? There's a reason that that's so powerful. Even the good news was going to get to the Samaritans, which is going out further. And finally it says, to the ends of the earth. Well, they understood the ends of the earth to be a pretty small area. They, they understood that there was a place called China, and, and they, they kind of to the Mediterranean, and they, they saw kind of understood Spain, and then they would look down into Ethiopia and Africa and, and the north part of Egypt. That was the world as far as they were concerned. That was really as far as anybody had traveled. They didn't know that there was a Scandinavia. They didn't know there was was the Americas. They didn't know about any of that. And so when Jesus says to the ends of the earth, he's actually making a statement that they can't comprehend. And that's important because Jesus says a lot of things we can't comprehend. Jesus says a lot of things that we don't understand. And we've got to accept it and trust. We can't read into it and assume it means any one thing based on our knowledge. We have to read what it says and understand that it means exactly what he says. See, what happens is a new, another guy comes along named Ptolemy, and he expands about 150 years later to the Arctic and into the Atlantic and all over, and the map suddenly grows like crazy. And within three generations, the gospel is moving to all of those places. So when Jesus says the ends of the earth, he, he literally meant the end of the earth, the furthest points, the outermost reaches. What it, doesn't, what it does not mean is the edge of the earth. And, and so there is a thing out there that continues to persist that folks believe the earth is flat. And part of the reason that Christians use this as, as a, a reference is that Jesus said the edge of the earth. It isn't the edge of the earth. It's the outermost parts of the earth. So if you're a flat earth fan, sorry, Jesus doesn't support you on that here. What it talks about is there are parts of the world that you haven't even conceived of. What we're learning as we do world missions is there's people out there that we never knew even existed. They didn't know other people existed. 
And we have an opportunity. We've got a privilege in world missions as a, as a little congregation in the middle of West Central Minnesota to being able to reach people in, in the upper reaches of the Amazon basin in Colombia that didn't even know there was other tribes of people out there. That's what Jesus is talking about when he said the ends of the earth. It's places you've never even imagined. That's what we're called to reach. That's what we have an opportunity to go to and be witnesses of the gospel. So what happens in chapter 2 is this arrival of the Holy Spirit actually comes to life and we understand what Jesus is talking about. But for the moment, we have to take it on faith that this Holy Spirit is coming that's bringing supernatural power. But they didn't understand at that point. And we know that that arrival is called the Day of Pentecost and we're going to get there soon. And that's going to be a cool passage to work through. Now the next part, we've got to just trigger this movie in your mind, okay? Because this is something that's just amazing to, to dream of. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, so this didn't happen behind a curtain, this happened in full view of everyone gathered. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. There's the cloud, he's risen, right? Cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood with them in white robes. So as they're gazing up into heaven, suddenly two guys appear wearing white robes just standing next to him. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, going back to the folks that read and write and help us to understand the Bible. They talk about how many passages in Scripture, this cloud that comes from heaven is really a host of angels. That was the way people understood it. How else do you explain something like that? In Daniel 7.13, this is, this is an Old Testament vision now, right? Daniel 7.13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. In the book of Daniel, this vision happens where one is a son of man. What does Jesus refer to in the New Testament often? The son of man who goes into this cloud and he's presented to the Ancient of Days, is presented before him. Who's the Ancient of Days? That is God who has always been there, who extends beyond time. In the book of Daniel, this vision is given. Jesus is lifted to heaven. It talks in Leviticus 16.2. God appears to Moses and, and he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be as a cloud over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. There's passage after passage after passage in the Bible where God appears as a cloud. And, and as Jesus ascends into heaven, there is this cloud from heaven that takes him up. So I can only imagine if you'd been there that day, if you're on that hill that we looked at, it's a beautiful place. You've got this incredible city of Jerusalem in front of you. And then you've got Jesus, the guy who died, was buried, and has just been raised from the grave, who suddenly is just being lifted up into the heavens in this cloud. Talk about standing in stunned silence, am I right? It's interesting that the only ones that speak are these men in white robes, the angels. There's nobody in that gathered crowd that has a word. Suddenly they're silent. All of this stuff that they're worried about, about being restored to their former greatness, they simply fall silent. They've got nothing to say. What they're witnessing is beyond any explanation or description. What do they do now? What do they do? He's promised the Holy Spirit, and we just saw him lifted up to heaven. The, the angel's question is a fair question. But it almost seems silly, but there's this promise. There's this promise that's rooted in that verse that he's coming back to earth the same way he went to heaven. One day, Jesus is going to come back on the clouds. 
What do we live for? What do we wait for? That day that Jesus returns. And Luke records how it is that he left. And the angels promise that he's going to return. So the question then is this. We have no idea when that day is coming. And you have no idea how you're going to live. Or how long you're going to live. So are you going to be ready when he comes back? Or are you going to run from him? Because I really think when that day happens and we're left speechless again, that's one of two responses. Either we are going to be so grateful that he's returned or we're going to run in fear because we realize all of our life has been lived for us. We're going to realize in that moment we shut him out and we didn't do anything that he asked of us. Will you be ready or will you be a runner? Are you ready for his return or are you going to run away from him? Will he find us faithful? Because I think that's the question. Even in our sinfulness, will Jesus find us faithful in reaching the world, even the furthest reaches of the world, with the good news of the salvation, the life, death, and the resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins? Will Jesus find us faithful in sharing that message? One of the biggest responsibilities I have here is saying yes to that, that we as a church need, we must be faithful to that question. Will Jesus find us faithful even in our sinfulness? Yes, as a congregation, he will find us faithful to reaching the world, not just the people around us, but as much of the world as God allows us to reach. And yeah, it's a money thing, and it's a person thing, and it's a volunteer thing, but you know what? It's a driving thing. It's who we are. It's what we're about. He will find us faithful. When Jesus returns in the clouds, how will he find you? Let's pray. God, thank you that Luke recorded this incredible event. That that we get to look at it and and read about history in the book of Acts. It it isn't a fairy tale. I, I, I talk about a Marvel movie, but God, you know this is real. This isn't pretend. No one in Hollywood dreamed this up. What we're reading is a book of history. We're reading an eyewitness account of Jesus ascending to you, the ancient of days in heaven. And those, those men that appeared in white robes, those angels that you sent, said he will return again. God, we want to be ready for that. We, we want as many people to come with us to heaven as we can possibly reach. And God, when we think about heaven in those eyes, There's just nothing on earth that's worth spending our money on more than investing and reaching other people. Because, God, when when it comes to the end of days, it truly is the end. And one day you will allow us to go to the place of our choosing. That's either heaven or hell. Thank you that you have given us everything we need to know you. You've given us everything that we need to be obedient to you. And then you sent us Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be in a relationship with you. God, for all of this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got the opportunity to decide who we're going to be and who we're going to live for. There's just nothing better that you can pour your time and your effort and your resources and your finances into than living for Jesus.